0: Welcome to Throwing Light. This is what I learned in adult sex ed. Before we get into it, I'm doing another storytelling show. So this comes out on the Thursday before the Saturday of the show. So it's this Saturday, June 24th at the Old Shabeen. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It's A-U-L-D, one word, S-H-E-B-E-E-N. It'll be in the show notes. Yeah, so it's in Fairfax, Virginia, and it's $15 at the door. You can buy tickets in advance at $12. I'm going to be sharing the home birth story of Brooklyn Corey, and I'm really excited. I actually wrote this piece shortly after Who's Born. So I, everything is fresh, like the memory is, you know, the things that you forget over five years, that's all documented, and it's kind of an outrageous dare I say funny, kind of horrifying <laughs> at the same time. It's it's birth, which makes perfect sense. So I, th- I think it'll be interesting. And the title of the show is Labor Pains, Work, Bosses and Babies. So it's not just going to be home birth stories. It's going to be all kinds of things. And I think it'll be a little bit lighter. Okay. So the heart of this episode, we are sexual beings, and that's okay. And the reason I say that is because, like, I didn't know that for so long. The class that I took that I'm referencing today is a psychology class. It's a community college class. It was called Human Sexuality. And it was taught by Professor Melissa McKinney. And she's brilliant. Yeah, if you live in the area and you want to take the class, (laughs) I highly recommend it message me and I can get you the info on how to do that. I talked a little bit in a past episode about struggles I had had, have had, have still have (laughs) in life with sexuality and especially because of trauma and past stuff. And so this was not a class I needed for anything. I wanted to take as many psychology classes as I could Because I'm getting ready to go to grad school. And at the time, I didn't know if I was going to get my master's in psychology counseling or in social work. So if I had gone the psychology counseling route, then I would have needed some more psychology prerequisites. I took this class partly just for my own. Like, it's easier for me to deal with hard topics in an academic to take an academic approach. And so I wrote the teacher a (laughs) a note right after the first class had begun. In the first class, we wrote, she was like, okay, write down all the words you can think of for penis and write down all the words you can think of for vagina and then write down all the words you can think of for basketball. And the idea was there's a lot of slang terms for the first two, t- <laughs> the first two words, and maybe not for like anything else. Like we have a lot of, we have a lot of ways of saying it because we were obsessed and terrified. And so she asked the class, you know, how do you guys feel about slang? And told us to email her because everybody said they were fine, but some people might not be fine, but not be comfortable saying it. So. I wrote her this note. You asked us to email you if we were uncomfortable with using slang. I'm, I'm not. Slang is fine. But to be completely honest, I am totally terrified of anything having to do with sex or sexuality. <laughs> I'm a survivor of sexual abuse and assault. And so all that to say, I know that you're not my therapist. <laughs> I do have one. And I'm taking psychology classes at MC right now and applying to go to grad school, blah, blah, blah. I chose to take your class because I want to learn and try to get away from all the negative associations that I have with the subject matter. I prefer to approach most dicey topics from an academic point of view because I'm a big nerd. I'm sure that I probably freaked her out a little bit. I don't know, maybe not. She kind of seemed like the type of person who wasn't freaked out by very many things. But I took this class along with a self-defense class and by happenstance, along with a movement for the performer class. I fell into this, okay, human sexuality and self-defense and movement, and I guess I'm moving my body this semester. And it was really great for me. I kind of live in my head. I honestly think that's not as true as it was at the beginning of the semester, but I did that so that I could connect the two. You know, mind-body connection. It's a wonderful thing. I learned so much in this class, and I'm not going to walk you through all that we talked about. I'm just going to kind of point out the things that stood out to me and that really made me think specifically the things that changed my perspective, because I think that I was shocked by how much I didn't know, and I was shocked by how, I guess, approachable sex felt from, I guess, from that perspective. So one of the first things she did was define sex. So she defined it as anything that increases arousal and increases the probability of orgasm. <laughs> so what is funny about that is I think that's a pretty good definition. So I came of age, came I guess I came of age in a pretty Christian environment and had, had decided at that point I was not going to have sex until I got married. There's a whole big long story there. I had already obviously had sex before I got married because I had a kid before I got married, but there came a point where I decided, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. And that was actually pretty problematic. But when I look back at how we did not have sex in the three years we were together before we got married... I am pretty sure that we did stuff that increases arousal <laughs> and the probability of orgasm, you know, because we were hot for each other, like you are when you're newly hanging out. I would bet that I'm not alone in that. In the people who waited, <laughs> like me, who came of age in the Christian world, if we define sex that way, they have had it. <laughs> Because we're sexual beings. So let me say, she approached the... So the purposes of the class, according to the professor, were to increase sexual intelligence, understanding of oneself sexually, understanding your own boundaries and values, and having interpersonal sexual skills and integrity and understanding other people's boundaries. To intelligently consider... The broader cultural and political context of sex, sexual issues. She took a scientific rather than a religious or medical approach. So, this was really new to me. And I feel like maybe probably to a lot of other people. I, I mean, who knows? Maybe to a lot of people listening to this podcast. I think uh, many people grew up in a place where religious values and sexual values were so deeply intertwined that. It it is difficult to separate the two. And for me, they were intertwined to an unhealthy degree. One of the first things that I did in the class, so the class was like 97.5% discussion. Like All we did was argue with each other respectfully. And one of the very first things I did was push back against the idea that sexual acts did not have a spiritual element. But I have to say that honestly, by the end of the class, I had come around to agree with much of my professor's point of view. In my final paper, I wrote this. One of the most important changes in my attitude for this semester uh, that I wasn't expecting (laughs) is coming to understand my 15-year-old daughter as a person with a sexuality. I think that because of uh, things she had been through and because of my own view of sex had been negative for so long... I deeply feared her sexuality and almost went about it as, how do I protect her from sex? (laughs) The shift in my own perspective towards sex positivity and coming to understand sex as a healthy, natural part of being human has had many positive reverberations in my own life, and I have no doubt will impact my children in a positive way. So we had to, like, kind of write up our... Uh, This is what I had. I wish I had, like, the actual final paper that I wrote. I had this whole thing, like, I had this light bulb moment, the day of the final. I was thinking about the spirituality of sex and... If there is a spiritual element, and I had written a little bit about it like before I got there, in my, so we were given the questions ahead of time, and we had to write our answers, but then we weren't allowed to bring our papers with us, and we had to kind of remember the content and and rewrite the papers in the class on the day of the final, all essays the final was and one of the questions was, you know what how has your perspective changed and and thinking about this idea of sex and spirituality being like deeply linked what i learned is that it comes down to values i wish i had the paper because it i was way more brilliant <laughs> that day i actually got 100 on the final which is insane for an essay question final do sexual acts have a spiritual element i believe yes but probably not in the way that we think I live by the idea that everything is spiritual. And so everything we do (laughs) has a spiritual element. Recording a podcast has a spiritual element. Driving a car has a spiritual element. When you separate spirituality from morals, which is, I know, a dicey thing to do, and people don't like to do it, but I think it's important that we do it. And a lot of people that are way smarter than me (laughs) have argued the same thing, so I hope I'm not like, going out on a blasphemous limb. But even if I am, that's probably a good thing because this is the Throwing like podcast, right? So morals tell us, in the Christian sphere, they tell us you shouldn't have sex before marriage. But we're sexual beings. So you tell a 15-year-old, you're not supposed to have sex before marriage. But they're probably not going to get married in, in our culture until they're, I mean, earliest, maybe 20 probably closer to 25, 30. Studies have shown that people who get married before the age of 26 have a much higher rate of getting divorced. You live a good portion of your adult life as an unmarried individual, but as a Christian, you're not supposed to have sex. In I guess some, I'm sure you wouldn't say that across the board. And I don't know, my experience with the progressive Christian sphere and sexuality is that they kind of dance around it. (laughs) Like progressive Christians don't say either way. I'm specifically talking about Christians who have decided, okay, we shouldn't have sex before we get married. Well, what do you do? And in some Christian spheres, in the one that I was part of for a long time, you're not supposed to masturbate either. So you have all these healthy urges and you can't do anything with them. And so they come out and really sometimes really unhealthy ways. And we see that in sex scandals within the church, and especially in these really super patriarchal churches. So is that better? So, okay, we're not supposed to have sex until we get married, but we're human. And what are we supposed to do with these feelings and urges and bodily functions? And for men, this is a thing, like if they don't have Like, if you don't have an orgasm (laughs) while you're awake, you'll have wet dreams. It comes out somehow, (laughs) which I learned in the class. So that probably is true for women, too. But we're designed to be sexual. And so we have to figure out a way to do that (laughs) that is healthy. And just say no is not a healthy answer. So that is, in a nutshell, I think, some of what I took away from the class. The second major shift that I had was the idea that not all prostitutes are doing the work that they do because they're destitute or enslaved. And this, you guys, like, I love making prostitutes the heroine, but that comes with the built-in idea that they somehow need to be lifted up because they're the victim. We read this article, I'll put it in the show notes, where this man, he had such trouble breathing on his own that... 23 hours a day, he had to be in this thing that helped him to breathe. There was only a little bit of time where he could be kind of out in the outside world. And he grew up with like really strictly religious family. So they had all these ideas about you're not supposed to have sex before you get married. And he had a lot of shame with that because he had urges and he was a writer too. So he wrote a lot about it. And ultimately the article detailed him hiring a sex therapist, but she was a sex therapist who was not just it was not just talking. She was touching and they would have sex. She was married. She loved her job. And what they don't tell you at the end of the article, because the article ends like really sad. He's like, I wish I'd, n- I'd never done this. But our professor kind of knew the end of the story and the the man did go on to meet a girl, and got married, and he had passed away, but he did experience a real relationship later in life. And would he have had the confidence to do that if not for the sex therapist? And nobody can answer that question, of course, but what I wrote in my final was, The fact that she enjoyed her work was astounding, and I think it drove home the point that sex does not necessarily have spiritual metaphysical implications psychologically. We attach meaning to it. We can do that consciously and intentionally, or we can do it unconsciously with what our culture or religion has handed down to us. That feels like a shift in perspective. So I guess I did kind of unpack that earlier. But yeah, so we, to some degree... One of the things that I'm really passionate about is being intentional about your life and what you believe. If we're not intentional, what happens is we get handed down stuff and fed stuff. We become consumers. We just take what we're given and we're like, oh, well, of course I'm not supposed to have sex before I'm married because that's what so-and-so told me. Or, you know, I was 15 15 or 16 before I realized that it was physically possible to have sex before marriage. Like, I just had no idea. I thought there was like a lock or something. <laughs> so those were kind of my two big aha moments, my takeaway from the class. What I want to uh, kind of shift into now is it's a little bit more how to we? <laughs> that struck me as funny. It probably wasn't. So we talked a little bit about consent slash assertiveness, slash asking for what you want. So our teacher gave us this great script for how to ask for what we wanted sexually. I want to verb your adjective noun, which sounds really dirty until you insert, I want to touch your beautiful hair. Or, you know, obviously you could put in whatever verb, adjective, noun you want. (laughs) And it can be really dirty. That's the fun of it. She said, like, most of what she teaches in... Human sexuality is how to communicate. One of the most important things I think that she said, and I mean, this is so true, but consent is never understood. It has to be given. Also, feelings about partners' actions are important, whether that's like, I really like that. That turns me on to like, that pisses me off. Don't ever do that again. Like, those are important to communicate. And how we communicate is just as important. Be aware when communicating, people often lie. Especially about sex, we talked about the basic communication loop. Number one is intent, what you're trying to say. Number two is encoding, the way that you say it. Uh, number three, uh, decoding, so how the receiver receives the message, and number four is feedback, how they process the info and what they give back to you, and and thus begins the loop again. So I think we would all benefit from thinking deeply about the way that we communicate. We think about that, I think, in terms of like relationships, how we talk to our kids, career, but I hadn't really thought a lot about like how do I communicate sex stuff? She gave us this, these kind of four steps for how to be assertive. Number one, describe the behavior as objectively as possible, which is difficult to do. It's not difficult to do if you think about it first. Number two, use I statements, like I want to verb your adjective noun. Number three, specify the changes you would like to see made. And number four, and this is like the best one, choose the consequences that you're willing to accept if the situation does not change. So they're a human being with with their own thoughts and feelings and opinions, as you know. And if you say, I want to touch your beautiful hair, they might say, hell no. (laughs) If you are in a committed sexual relationship, you would have to decide, do I want to be with somebody who won't let me touch their beautiful hair? It gets on to bigger stuff. And my husband and I were talking about this particular thing in the realm of extramarital, I guess, extramarital relations. So I'm gonna talk about that in a minute. But basically, if you have a partner who, for whatever reason, doesn't want to have sex, then you follow this kind of, you know, describe the behavior as objectively as possible. I love you, and I want to be intimate with you. I want to have a relationship like that with you. Specify the changes you would like to see made. What if we just tried it once a week or whatever it is for you, (laughs) and then they say, okay, that sounds great, or I can't commit to that or whatever it is. What happens is we don't want to have these hard conversations. These are uncomfortable conversations. They're uncomfortable sometimes for both parties. But instead of saying, I want to have sex with you more, you don't say that. You might just go without, which is unhealthy <laughs> for your body. You might go out and get some on the side, and that's unhealthy for your relationship. We think of these as moral issues, and to some degree they are, but they stem from a fear because we don't want to communicate the hard things. She had this whole section on listening, um, things that interfere with, with listening, with good listening. Mind reading was the first one, which I am brilliant at. You know what they're thinking, right? Rehearsing what you'll say next, filtering or selective listening, drifting, not paying attention, identifying or relating everything back to your own experiences, comparing, derailing or changing the topic, sparring or nitpicking every little point, placating, appeasing. And then she had five really good... Tips for good listening. Use encouraging body language. Respond in ways that show that you're listening. Waiting for the answer to any question you ask. I think that's an important thing that is often overlooked. Pay attention to what is not being expressed. Focus on understanding rather than being understood. My biggest deep down thing is like, I'm not being understood. I'm misunderstood. Taking the focus off myself. In heated arguments, especially like trying to put yourself in their point of view, you're halfway there. And the last one was be trustworthy. The thing that she talked about a lot was women, especially, often say no when they mean yes. And that's not helping our cause. <laughs> and there is room for that within role playing, which we talked about at great length. <laughs> you should totally take this class. But if you're not role playing, And you want to have sex, you should say that you want to have sex or whatever it is, because it sets your partner up for not good situation. Because if you ever don't want to, but you have cultivated a habit, it creates obviously all kinds of problems. And her advice to men when they ask what happens if I'm in that situation and she says no, but I know she means yes, I know it. Her advice was she says no, step back. And I would say that goes for you could flip it, too. She gave us some stats on extramarital sex, and this was toward the end of a class, and I found it fascinating. And a couple of years ago, I started really questioning, why do we pair off for life? OK, the Bible says that, but most of us don't follow the Bible. So what is that? What is that about? And I don't have like a, an answer. My own personal view is, so polyamory, let me define that really quick. Polygamy is when you're married to more than one person. Polyamory is when you're in a relationship. I think I said that right. So polyamory is like relationships. You could be married to one of them. But usually, I don't know about usually, but it's possible that both of you have multiple relationships. It is a fluid kind of evolving thing within the polyamory community. I believe that some people believe that relationships, there's not the emphasis necessarily on everlasting relationships. I think there's a belief that people teach, have something to teach you, and it doesn't have to end badly. And the end of a relationship is not necessarily a bad thing. There's a huge polyamorous community in DC. I've never been in it, but I have heard about it. And I have some friends who are involved I've coached people who were polyamorous. My views have shifted radically. And I mean, you know, I'm always questioning. So that kind of led me down this not-so-strange rabbit hole. So these are extramarital sex statistics. (laughs) And I don't have the exact numbers because I didn't write them down. and, And I don't think that was part of it. But there are four types of extramarital sex. Number one, accidental. All that means is it's not consistent with a person's character often involves alcohol. These relationships, when that happens, when the accidental type of extramarital sex occurs, that's fairly recoverable. Number two, romantic infidelity. So feelings for another person, whether or not you have sex, these are actually more likely to end a marriage. Number three, an open marriage where one or both parties have relationships, whether sexual or not, outside of the marriage. So this is the most fascinating to me. Open marriages or polyamorous marriages, statistically, if you have an agreement that you guys are going to see other people besides yourself, then you're just as likely to be in a happy marriage. The reason I think these relationships work is the communication skills that I talked about a little while ago. They're like masters in communicating. Like you have to be an effective communicator if you're going to have multiple relationships. If you're gonna navigate feelings like lust and love and jealousy, it's all about negotiating. It's all about how do we work this out? Anytime you go outside of the social script, the normal way of doing things, you have to make up your own rules and you have to do it together. And then the last group of extramarital sex is the philanderers. These are serial cheaters. It's usually not about sex. It's about power and self-esteem, and surprising no one, (laughs) the relationship usually doesn't last. One of the most important takeaways for me in this class was what to do when you're in a marriage or relationship, and you guys have different drives or needs or wants. And I spoke a little bit in a past episode. I have a very low sex drive. My husband does not. And I just carried so much shame for so many years. I mean, we've been married now for 9 years and I have felt like I wasn't a good wife because I couldn't I couldn't meet his needs in relationships like this. And my professor went on a little bit of a rant. She was talking about Christians. She grew up in a very conservative Christian culture and so she was ranting a little bit, but she said they say before you get married that sex is so important and you need to do it and you have to please your husband, you have to please your wife. And then after you get married, if one person doesn't want to, and I'm paraphrasing, by the way, uh, the other is told that sex is not important and you should put your spouse first. And her big thing was either it's important or it isn't. And you have to pick one. You can't you can't have both. <laughs> In that class, I was really upset and triggered. And like, it's not that I don't want to. It's that trauma, blah, 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 blah. And she basically said, you know, you're not saying, <laughs> well, just get over it but it is all about negotiating, okay, so if I'm not able to do this, that doesn't mean that it can't be done, (laughs) for lack of a better term. And there are ways of negotiating that within a marriage or relationship so that both people feel happy and comfortable and safe and loved and able to express themselves sexually. And all of the shame like Not all of it dissipated because I'm, (laughs) shame is a thing, but a lot of it did. And I just felt like this weight lifted off of me and like, we can figure this out. Like it's not, we're working on it and it's going to suck until we fix it. There's another way. Communication and negotiating and talking about what you want and what you need. That's so beautiful. Like that's relationship. That's marriage. That's love. How to reignite passion was one of the last things we talked about, and she gave us three things, and they're pretty helpful. Variety, shared experiences, and oddly enough, <laughs> time spent apart. So there's this like nice balance of you do things together and you do things apart. So that's, that's about all I have. I hope this was good for you. <laughs> Okay, here it is, your break for verses. From the background, you exist. When I love you, I see you. I do not see the light, but the light allows me to see. Love doesn't want praise. It wants you to love people.